This is History West Midlands. Historically, widows have often been portrayed as pitiful figures dressed in black who required charity to survive. This was certainly true of the lives of many working-class women over the centuries for whom day-to-day existence was already marginal. But for others, widowhood released them from a domestic life where they could own nothing and in which they were totally subjugated to their husband's will. Now, as widows, they found themselves suddenly empowered and free to conduct themselves as they wished, with an independence of thought and action and a defined role in society. In their new book, authors and historians Maggie Andrews and Janice Lomas explore the lives of these women, both famous and unknown. Maggie spoke to the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, about some of the stories which the book reveals. Maggie, can I begin by asking you what prompted you to choose widows as a subject for your latest book? My co-writer, Janice Lomas, and I, in the run-up to the centenary of, of women's suffrage in 2018, we were exploring various women, and it came to us that all of the three leaders of the main suffrage organisations in Britain, Mrs Pankhurst, Charlotte Despard, Mrs Fawcett, they were all widows. And at a certain point, we began to ask ourselves whether this was coincidence or whether there was something actually much more significant in this, whether it was only widows, or particularly widows, who were in a position to launch those sorts of political campaigns and lead those political campaigns. And the further we researched and looked around at this, the more we began to see the significance that widows have had in the women's movement and in, I think, the progress of women much more generally over the last couple of hundred years or so. And as you were conducting the research, what do you think really motivated widows as a group to get involved in such programmes in a leadership position? I think there's two sides to that. I think the widows themselves were often looking for a cause, something that would really give a purpose to their lives in their period of widowhood. But I think there's something much more complicated than that. I think it's that widows, because middle-class ones had some form of economic independence, some sort of finance, because they had respectability, because they were not able to be ridiculed in the way that single women were when they were involved in these political campaigns. They were uniquely suitable to lead campaigns. When they were married, they were the junior partner in a marriage. And of course, once they're widowed, they're in charge of their finance, their time, their lives, most of them their households as well. So the stereotypical picture of a a widow, a middle-aged woman dressed in black, sad, being at home, reading your book, that doesn't seem to be true throughout history. I think our research showed that although there were women dressed in black for long periods of time and mourning dress was expected of people in Victorian periods, although there were people who grieved, It's a much broader, more complex, more varied picture than this. And for many women who did not have the sorts of relationships that women expect to have now when they get married, actually, widowhood offered them 
a new sense of freedom and purpose and the ability to really find out who they were. And so you find there are lots who are amazingly creative. They do art. They write like Margaret Oliphant or Mary Shelley. They travel in ways they haven't done before. Many of them are running farms or businesses, which once they were running with their husbands, but now they're going to run on their own. They do all sorts of philanthropic work. And actually, for a number of them, this is clearly the high point of their lives. And you also have to remember that they're often widowed much younger than we associate widowhood with in the 21st century. Middle-class women tended to marry men who were older than them. The life expectancy of men was lower than it was of women. So you would find women who were widowed when they were late 30s or 40s, and they then had their whole life ahead of them. Some of them hadn't had children. And then, you know, what were they going to do? Well, actually, what they did was quite fabulous in many respects. And in the West Midlands, one story which really stuck out for me was that of Eliza Tinsley. Could you tell us more about her? She's fascinating, isn't she? When she's widowed, she's in her late 30s, she's got five children, it's the middle of the 19th century, and her husband really is an industrialist. He's got a huge nail and metalworking business in the black country, lots of outworkers, and... You know, he leaves the business to her on the understanding that she won't marry again, which is not unusual because actually if you do get married, the money passes to your husband and the ownership at this point of time. So he's trying to protect the business for his sons. And the assumption is she'll look after this business till one of her sons grows up. And interestingly, she very quickly changes the name of the business to her own name. She runs it incredibly successfully. She develops it. She has at one point 3,000 employees. And, you know, she makes a huge success of it. And when she dies, she is really, modern terms, very much a millionaire. Interestingly, she never hands it on to her sons. It's one of the people that she employs who takes it on. But she is a real example of a woman who... If at the age of 18, she'd said, I want to run a nail and metalwork business, everyone would have gone, no, that's horrendous. But because of her widowhood, because of her care for her son, ostensibly, and looking after the business for him, she becomes a very successful businesswoman. And did stories like that in Victorian and Edwardian Britain, did that surprise you when you were doing the research? Or did you expect to find people like her? I was surprised how easy it was to find examples like that, if that makes sense, that there were numerous women who were running farms, who took over their husbands' businesses. You know, it could be small businesses like pubs, little farms in Wales. It could be shops, drapers and undertakers and what have you. But I hadn't realised how extensive that was. Now, many of those women would have been doing their husbands' books and helping them out when they were alive. So they had probably a good sense of the business. And was this very much a middle-class scenario, or was this also true of poorer classes, the working class in somewhere like the Black Country or Birmingham? I think you do get a very different view of widowhood from those who are in the working class. I mean, we called it, you know, widows, poverty, power and politics, because there's always the fear of poverty. And for the working class woman, widowhood is very much often about poverty. It's about a struggle to survive, a struggle to keep their children, a struggle to keep out of the workhouse and find a place in society. Even in the middle class women's eyes, there is a fear of poverty, that they will slip into poverty, they will lose respectability, they will be in difficulties, particularly when their homes and their livelihoods have been 
tied up with their husband's work. So one of the groups that I was fascinated to discover were vicars and church people. And it wasn't just the Church of England, but Methodist Church and so forth, where they'd been living in a vicarage or a house with their husband. They had a role in the parish. And the minute he dies, they've lost their husband and they've lost their home. They are suddenly destitute. You get others, for instance, we have ones whose husbands have been in the forces. They may have been an officer or something, but actually at the point that they die, suddenly they're homeless. And we do find them slipping again into the sort of poverty and the horrors of really just trying to keep a roof above their head and keep themselves out of the workhouse, doing a lot of sewing, becoming governesses, becoming nurses sometimes, in desperation going into religious convents, anything in order to keep their sort of sense of respectability. So I think you get, you know, some really well-off upper-class women, middle-class women. Then you get those middle-class women who are worried that they're going to slip into poverty. And then you get the horrors, really, that is the working-class experience of widowhood. And that's because until after the First World War, there is no widow's benefits or pensions. There is the beginnings of insurance, but that's something that only really the better off can afford. There's no dowries if you're a working class woman. You're actually reliant upon poor relief paid out by the local parish. In 1834, there is the new poor law. It's brought in with the idea that it will encourage people to be industrious and self-reliant and work hard and not be a cost on the local parish and on the better off in certain areas. And so it's designed to make people work. But of course, it assumes that people are almost choosing to be lazy, choosing to be poor. And the widow is not a widow by choice. She's a widow, actually, by definition, unintentionally. And for those women, the situation where actually they're not going to get any relief or they might have to go in a workhouse where they'll be separated from their children, only allowed to see them once a week. That's quite a horrendous situation. And you do get also a situation where the poor relief is paid in local areas. So they're desperately trying to look for a reason not to pay a widow. And the main reason they they use is if the husband was not born or of that parish. And if that's the case, they ship the widow back to wherever it was her husband was born. It can be wherever it is in the country, and that's where she'll get her relief. So you do have in the middle of the century a lot of women who are really in severe deprivation, struggling, relying upon friends and family. A large number rely upon married daughters. A large number rely upon food and goods given by their local communities. And a large number have to resort to charity with all the tensions and the condescension that charity involves. As the century progresses, I do think there is a growing feeling that the widow is what I would call the deserving poor. It's not their fault. They ought to be looked after. But on the other hand, they also have to behave appropriately in order to be deserving. So it's no good if they are seen gallivanting around with other men or what have you. I mean, they may be taking a very rational decision that what they need is to get married again, but that's not appropriate. They have to remain chaste. They have to be seen to be bringing up their children properly. And then charity begins to step in. But there are still huge gaps there. And right through until the Edwardian period, we see those gaps and how badly it goes wrong. The famous actor Charlie Chaplin, his mother as a widow, is absolutely struggling to survive. And he describes in his autobiography how he is selling their clothes, taking all sorts of jobs as a small child, just to try and help them stay economically viable. And eventually his mother 
ends up in an asylum, absolutely mad from the stress of trying to survive in a poverty situation as a widow. So for some, it's absolutely appalling. And during this period, the Victorian period and the early Edwardian, marriage was a goal for many women. And therefore, obviously, widowhood stands at the other end of that spectrum. Did you see in your research a change in attitude to marriage, that marriage for women wasn't a necessity? I think younger women are very much focused on their job for life is supposed to be to get married and to marry well, to marry a good provider. But what I think you do see as the century progresses is, you know, about 10% of the households in this country in Victorian era are headed up by a widowed woman. And 10%. About 10%. This is a lot of independent women running their households. And I think that gives a different model for young girls growing up. The possibilities, the things that these women are doing, the way in which everything from writing novels to taking in lodgers and what have you, that they manage to survive independently is a really interesting example that shifts people's ideas around gender and begins to broaden them and begins to suggest to people that it's not just marriage that's a goal. There may be other things in that. So widows and widowhood was an important catalyst in the movement for independence of women and particularly of the suffragette movement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I think that widows were a real catalyst for how the suffrage movement operated, but also they became an example to be used to show how ridiculous the anti-suffrage arguments were. Because people would say, you can't have the vote because you don't pay tax. You're not a householder. But of course, if you've got this large number of widows who are, then people would argue, well, at least these should be able to vote. Also, I think they were used as an example because, you know, people would say, if widows are allowed to vote as householders, as taxpayers, that'd be a good idea. And look, it won't cause any strife in the household, which was another of the arguments used against women being allowed to vote. So they became this symbolic group that suffrage campaigners argued should be allowed to vote. And there was a very strong sense amongst many of the suffrage campaigners that if just some women were able to vote, then that would disturb the status quo. Once you got some women voting, the floodgates would begin to open. So they were used in that way, but also they were hugely important as funders of the suffrage campaigns. You've got some of them who were in control of their finance. They could do what they like with it. And some of them were pouring money into the suffrage movements. But they were also on the ground. They were people who were hosting the at-homes where, you know, people over tea discussed suffrage. They were able to support each other. They were able to look after women when it became the more violent period of the suffrage campaigns who had been in prison and needed to recuperate. All of those sorts of things the widow could do without any feeling that she had to ask her husband's permission or worry about whether he disapproved or approved or not. And they are intriguing. I mean, most people are aware of Mrs Pankhurst and she was criticised in some respects for her care of her son who died when she was on a, a campaign tour of America. She's the one we know about. The one most people are less familiar with is Charlotte Despard, who I think is really quite fascinating. She's a very eccentric lady in many respects. She hadn't got children. She had got a lot of money because her husband had set up 
the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, what we know as HSBC. So she was very nicely off. She converted to Catholicism. She was vegetarian. She was pacifist. She wore a lot of long black clothes. She was also socialist, a poor law guardian. And she goes through the adult suffrage movement into Mrs. Pankhurst Women's Social and Political Union. And at a certain point, no, this is too extreme. We don't like the leadership. And she breaks off to form the Women's Freedom League, who are some of the most inventive, interesting campaigners for suffrage. They don't believe in outright violence, but they believe in a lot of civil disobedience and they chain themselves to railings and they distributed numerous leaflets and pamphlets from an air balloon over London and had barges that went up the Thames yelling at MPs as they sat on the terrace in the House of Commons. And of course, they arranged the 1911 census boycott. So she's this wonderfully runs this wonderfully inventive suffrage movement, which gets a lot of the publicity for the suffrage campaigns without any of the bombing and the burning and the window breaking that the Pankhurst group do. So I think she's underrated in her importance. She opposes the First World War. She is a strong supporter of the Irish freedom movement and actually becomes very involved in the Irish civil war and supporting people there. So just a fascinating character, unusual. So we have this progression towards women's suffrage, but then in 1914, the First World War breaks out, resulting in, what, half a million more widows by 1918 in Britain. How does the First World War change the position of widows in society, and particularly the government's and society's responsibility for widows. The First World War, I think, is absolutely fundamental in the shift towards the state taking responsibility for widows. Prior to the First World War, the majority, vast majority of men in the armed forces and the regular forces were not married. They had to get permission to marry and only about 10% were married. But of course, to people's surprise, when first of all, you have the volunteers and then you have conscription, what you've got is a large number of married men in the forces. And In order to keep that recruitment going, you're really going to have to do very quickly something to ensure that if they die, the government and society will look after their widows. And so announcements that there will be widow's pension come in very, very quickly. And by 1916, you have a ministry of pensions set up. So we're doing it in a very formal, organised fashion. Now, that's the first gender-specific welfare payment that there is in Britain. It's not very generous, but it is a pension and it is important. And it is only paid, of course, to those who die on active service. But it does mean that they're not going to have the same levels of crisis and poverty in the workhouse, which they would have faced 30 or 40 years previously. Now, I think it is important as that goes through the war, you have a growing number of widows with some resentment from some people towards them. The government slowly begins to realise that not only has it got to have payments to married widows, it's also got to have payments to what are termed unmarried wives, because there are many people who've been living with guys for many years. They have children and they also need to be supported because otherwise you will lose the number of men that they need to keep recruiting to the forces. So by the end of the war, you've got a lot of women in Britain getting a regular widow's benefit rather more than the government had imagined. It's a huge cost. They're looking for ways constantly of trying to restrict it or bring it down again. They lose it if they get married. They lose it if they don't behave properly. They're seen walking out with other people if someone reports them. And they lose it if men don't die of their injuries within seven years of the war. But of course, 
it's only for those who killed on active service. And what you have in the period after the war, you have men who've maybe left their regiment and on the way home they've caught Spanish flu and then died. Or you have people who've worked in the munitions for the whole of the war, very important for the war effort. They've caught Spanish flu or had an injury, they've died. None of their wives will get a widow's benefit. And so there is a growing sense that why are these women being looked after and not these women? And it's something that's picked up by the National Society for Equal Citizenship, which comes out of the suffrage movement. It's picked up by the Six Points Group, a big feminist organisation of the period. And it grows in the early 1920s, this sense that actually all widows should be looked after, particularly widows with children. There is some concern that if you don't look after them, they will bring down the rate of pay of men by undercutting them. And it moves towards 1925, finally, where you get the introduction of state widow's benefit. It's lower than the amount paid to the wives of those who've been killed in active service. And it is conditional on the men having paid a suitable number of contributions in their sort of insurance. That's quite problematic because, you know, in the heartbreaking story of Kathleen Dias, whose husband has not paid enough contributions, he dies in the late 1920s, she has three children. She was from Birmingham. And she is from Hockney in Birmingham. And she ends up with these three children being put into Dr. Bernardo's home because she cannot afford to keep them. And then she loses them for some eight years. And this is not an uncharacteristic story, I have to say. So the dire poverty and the lack of safety nets that there was in the 19th century and the need for widows to go into the workhouse begins to disappear in that interwar period. But still, for working class widows, it is a precarious existence, I think I would say. And one of the other major shifts in that immediate post-war period and the interwar years was women had the vote. And women actually started to take roles in local government, for example, in the Black Country and the West Midlands, and also in Parliament itself. Could you talk about the role of widows in those sorts of groups? Yeah. I think the 1920s and 30s is really fascinating in terms of the middle class widow who has done philanthropic work, suffrage work, and so forth in a previous period. In this period, there are so many new, I suppose, opportunities in public life for them. They can work in jobs that they once wouldn't have worked in. They can become involved in local government, and they can become involved in parliamentary politics. And, you know, my real heroine in the midst of this is Maggie Wintringham. Her husband was MP for Laos in 1921, where he died in his 50s in the Palace of Westminster. And um, they decide, the Liberal Party, that they will put up Maggie Wintringham as a prospective MP in her husband's seat. Now, this is not unusual. We see this, what they call almost piggybacking on their husband's name and notoriety and familiarity with the electorate. We see it in Ireland. We see it in America. We see it right across the world. Maggie Wintringham does the whole of the campaign, dressed in widow's weeds, never speaking in public at all. I mean, it is a performance. Her sisters speak for her. All sorts of campaigners from suffrage movement comes down. And she is elected as the first English-born woman to become an MP for the Liberal Party in 1921. She wins three elections, but elections came and went rather quickly. And she only lasts until 1924 or 5 before she loses her seat in Parliament. But once she gets into Parliament, she works with Nancy Astor, American-born first woman to take up her seat, and the two of them really work across party lines on women's issues. 
They campaign on women police, which people are very keen on. They campaign on the guardianship of infants, which had been something that was assumed always to be man's. They want equal guardianship of infants. They campaign for all sorts of issues for women to be considered. And particularly, she argues very strongly, she's in the Women's Institute, she's known as RMP, and she argues very strongly on rural housing. And my favourite speech of hers is when she stands up and she explains to the members of parliament that the cuts that are being brought in around housing and the sizes of council provision for housing will mean that the third bedroom in a house is smaller than the table that sits between the two opposing benches in the House of Commons. And she points out to them, look, how will you fit two or three girls or boys in something smaller than that table? And she makes a very impassioned speech. So she is a real sort of heroine. Interestingly, because she's a liberal and the liberals are really not doing well in the 20s, she loses her seat. And although she's very big in the Liberal Party as a whole, although she's still big in local government, afterwards she never gets back into Parliament, unfortunately. And interestingly, when she dies, very few people have heard of her. But she is a real sort of classic. She would never have got that seat if she hadn't been a widow. And were widows particularly important in local government at this time? Yes, you find women all over the place who are taking local government roles. Many of them as independents. This is something widows can do. They don't have to travel away from home. They can still do it with their children. They have already got a name in the area probably as a result of their husband and the local parties are more inclined to give them the seat. So yes, in both local government and in I think a lot of public organisations, they become very, very important in this period of time. How did the role of widows and attitudes to widows change between the First and Second World War? It's interesting That in the Second World War, they become, I think, always the acceptable face of single parenthood because they haven't chosen it. And in the Second World War, they are used, for instance, by the BBC interviews widows and gets them to talk about how you cope when you haven't seen your husband for four or five years, how you keep the memory of the father alive to children. BBC had already used widows to talk about in the 1930s about how you can manage on a tight budget. Um, So now they use them to how you can manage as a single parent. And I think that's quite sort of intriguing. They get a very different sort of status. Now, there are less widows produced in the Second World War by a long shot. But they still, you know, there is that sense that the government will look after them. And you do begin to get in the period as we move to the 40s and 50s, a number of widows who are going to become really trailblazers in the shift to women taking on very different sorts of jobs. Jobs with a lot of prestige and status in the creative industries, particularly in media and and the BBC and in journalism. And I think that's quite intriguing. I mean, my favourite in the midst of that is always Olive Shapley, who worked for the BBC in the 30s. She worked for the BBC during the war, right through into the 1940s. She's widowed for the first time in 1947. And she has four young children, I mean, really young children. And she's very big in woman's hour. She's one of the producers. She's one of the speakers. And she's wonderful autobiography that she writes. She describes how in those days in the BBC, you had to wear a black dress and pearls. You had to be very respectable. 
And so she would sail out of her house in the morning, leaving mayhem and children and what have you, and then go and do her BBC job and then come back in in the evening, as she describes, to try and prepare the supper and, and deal with children who are sick or ill or causing chaos. And she describes bringing them in and telling them to sit quietly and while they scribbled on the backs of scripts because she couldn't have a child minder that day. And she goes on to become really important in some of the women's movement. I mean, Olive Shapley turns her house into a, a home for single mothers in the 60s and then goes on to turn it into a home for Vietnamese refugees in the 70s. Looking at the role of widows now and attitudes to widowhood and widows, how typical do you think what you've just described is true of Britain today? I think that for women in Britain today, they don't realise how much widows have trailblazed for them. They've been the first ones in Parliament, in various jobs, in businesses, and they've created almost like a furrow that the rest of women can go into. I think that the position of widows has shifted quite significantly because life expectancy is very different, because over the 20th century, there was a shift in the ideas of marriage for it to be more about companionate relationship, a fulfilling thing, that widowhood is now not seen in terms of poverty in the same way, but in terms of an emotional bereavement, and particularly for young widows. But they are still seen as very interestingly emblematic and as the acceptable face of single parenthood. They have become quite different, particularly young widows. And I'm always struck by the sort of images of the widows of servicemen following coffins. And they're very different. They're presented quite sexily. They wear little tight black dresses, a lot of them. And they, <laughs> it's about how terrible it is to be a young widow, whereas it wouldn't have been an unexpected thing in the 19th century, and how they have lost such an enormous emotional part of their lives. So they've become, I think, seen in very different ways. But I still think you have that interesting element that for some women, this is the time when they are able to be more independent, more themselves, do things that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do, particularly if they've been caring for and looking after a loved one. But it's a very different period for most women. Maggie, where can people get a copy of your book? So Widows, Poverty, Power and Politics is published by History Press. It's available through their website. It's available through Amazon and it ought to be in good bookshops. Um, and, you know, I hope people will read it, enjoy it and see a very different side of widowhood. The new book, Widows, Poverty, Power and Politics by Maggie Andrews and Janice Lomas is available now from the publishers The History Press, Bookshops and Amazon. You can hear more interviews with Maggie Andrews and watch her fascinating programmes on The Home Front During the First World War and Mother's Experiences of Evacuation in the Second World War at our website, www.historywm.com. <laughs>